from the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Going the Other Way. We managed to successfully create an anastomosis in 76% of people. First this. You know it takes more than medical skill to run a 21st century ophthalmology practice. It takes a level of business acumen that, frankly, I do not possess. Fortunately, the American Society of Ophthalmic Administrators, the ASOA, is there for me. Now you can join the ASOA free for three months. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast to find out how. The reason that the retinal circulation is impeded in a CRVO is because the blood has nowhere to go. What if there were an alternate means of removing blood from the retina, an alternate venous system into which we could tap? The choroidal circulation is nearby, but getting to it means going through Brooke's membrane, and that, as we well know, is playing with fire. But suppose for a minute that we wanted to establish anastomoses between the retinal venous and choroidal circulations. How would we do it? Would breaking through Brooks really cause problems? Ian McAllister has published the results of a study examining a novel technique to induce such anastomoses, and I'm delighted to welcome him as my guest today. In the context of CRVO, what are the indications for treatment and what manifestations are treatable? Our treatment is um, based on, uh, at the moment, treating some of the uh, sequelae of the venous obstruction. The um, a study that uh, up until shortly has been the standard of care has been based on um, what we learned from the CBOS study, the central vein occlusion study, which was performed uh, quite a number of years ago now. And that basically uh, showed that uh, these patients should be followed very closely. If they develop very early signs of anterior segment neovascularization, they should be treated with panretinal laser. So that's one of the the end-term sequelae of this condition. More recent studies have looked at the uh, treatment of the uh, effects of the raised venous hydrostatic pressure and the extravasation of uh, fluid and blood into the retina, the breakdown of the uh, blood retinal barrier uh, due to upregulation of uh, vascular endothelial growth factor and other inflammatory factors. And these produce the macular edema and the retinal swelling. And there has been some uh, recent studies which uh, are in press at the moment. They, they haven't actually been uh, formally published, but they're, they're currently being accepted in press and have looked at the role of uh, VEGF uh, antibodies uh, and also uh, some uh, crystalline steroids on uh, reducing macular edema. And they've shown in the short term that these agents will actually help resolve the macular edema and will help improve vision in the short term. But repeated injections are required and we still don't know how effective these agents will be in the long term. 
these agents do nothing to address the underlying causal pathology, which is a blockage um, in the central retinal vein, which is providing an obstruction to venous outflow. Although the CRVO itself is a discrete event, the clinical manifestations evolve over time. What is the pathophysiology of this evolution? We assume that the cause of CRVO is a thrombus where we're not 100% sure, but we assume it's a thrombus uh, that occurs in the region of central retinal vein uh, where there is a natural constriction, an area called the lamina cribrosa. And it's assumed that it's due to a clot and this occurs in that region. It's right in the middle of the optic nerve and there is some propagation eventually of that clot. It may propagate and cause a complete obstruction, in which case as the retinal circulation is an end circulation with no normal collaterals or anastomoses, you get complete venous stagnation, the retina dies and you end up with the ischemic form of central retinal vein occlusion. In some cases, uh, that clot may hopefully break down uh, or you may develop some natural collateral formation within the optic nerve and uh, the obstruction to venous outflow is, is uh, reduced to a certain extent and the symptoms may gradually uh, resolve over time. But what actually happens is that we know there is an obstruction to venous outflow. It does raise the venous hydrostatic pressure. You do get this extravasation of uh, blood and fluid. The stagnation causes retinal ischemia. Vascular endothelial growth factors are upregulated. If the ischemia reaches uh, enough of a level that uh, abnormal blood vessels start to develop, they usually develop in the anterior segment of the eye on the iris and in the angle uh, of the eye, which is the area where fluid normally passes out of the eye. That becomes blocked and you end up with a condition called neovascular glaucoma, which um, is a quite a painful condition, very difficult to treat. Um, so the CVOS study looked at using laser to ablate the retina, which down-regulated VEGF and uh, reduced the risk of anterior segment neovascularization. The other studies have really looked at some of the other sequelae, the, the fluid and extravasation of blood. Uh, but again, they only treat those. They don't treat the core pathology, which is the blockage to venous outflow. On that same theme, as you mentioned, laser therapy and uh crystalline steroid therapy address the manifestations of the CRVO. Uh, Have there been any efforts before yours to treat the underlying flow obstruction? There there has been a number of uh, studies that have looked at uh, one way or another to try and relieve the obstruction to venous outflow. Um, Hemodilution uh, was used uh, a number of years ago This is where um, the hematocrit uh, is dropped and basically this doesn't purely address the causal pathology but what it does is that it tries to improve venous um, microcirculation and improve oxygen flow to the retina during a critical time. It still doesn't address the core pathology. Basically, you're trying to buy some time until hopefully the um, underlying blockage um, releases. People have also looked at the use of uh, thrombolytics agents which will dissolve um, the presumed clot. 
and these have been tried systemically but unfortunately in the group of people who develop this condition they are usually hypertensive they usually have other vascular pathologies and injecting these agents into the systemic circulation produced an unacceptable incidence of hemorrhagic side effects strokes things like that People have looked at using thrombolytic agents within the eye, injecting it either into the vitreous or directly into a vein, but to date these have not produced any convincing results that these agents work at all. Um, there has also been uh, some third surgical approaches uh, to try and decompress the optic nerve, if you like, not to purely address the blockage, but to try and reduce the compression of the optic nerve in that area of natural constriction where it passes out through the back of the eye and this is what is thought to be one of the anatomical predispositions to people getting a blockage in that area. Uh, optic nerve decompression was uh, originally tried again quite a number of years ago from an external approach. Um, there was a couple of studies done in Portugal uh, and basically it has really not been shown to have any effect and also has an unacceptable high incidence of side effects. More recently um, there has been attempts through a procedure known as a radial optic neurotomy to uh, decompress the optic nerve and this again is a surgical approach so people get a operation called a vitrectomy and then a micro knife is passed down the side of the optic nerve to try and reduce the pressure on the central retinal vein. There were some initially some encouraging results in a retrospective study uh, performed by the original uh, author of this technique, but subsequent studies have really not confirmed the success rate that he had. It's not been subject at all to a randomized controlled trial, and many people think that it works purely because in some cases up to about 40% they get a, a chorioretinal anastomosis occurring at the site where the, uh, the uh, knife was passed into the optic nerve. And most people believe that that is probably the mechanism why you see some improvement in some cases. It also is a surgical procedure with a significant risk of uh, side effects. So they're basically the approaches that have been tried to date. None of those, apart from the hemodilution, has been subject to a randomized controlled trial. And the hemodilution, as we said before, again, does not address the underlying causal pathology. What is LCRA, Ian? Well, this is a technique of using a high power density laser to create an anastomosis between two circulations that exist in the eye that normally are not connected. That's the retinal venous circulation and the layer underneath the retina called the choroid. And basically what we're doing is creating a channel between several anatomical barriers that normally exist to prevent those blood vessel channels uniting and uh, that allows a blood vessel to grow down that channel and unite the high pressure retinal venous circulation which has got a high pressure because it's obstructed to a low pressure choroidal venous circulation which is unobstructed. So we're creating a small channel between several anatomical barriers to allow blood vessel to grow down and hopefully that will bypass the obstruction. What was the design of your study and what were its main outcome measures? The, 
The design was that it was a uh, properly, fully formatted uh, phase three trial. It was a prospective, randomised, controlled, multi-centre clinical trial. It was conducted in Australia at uh, three centres. Uh, there was the centre that we had in uh, Perth, Western Australia, centres in uh, Sydney and centres in uh, Melbourne. We mainly included people that were, well, people were included only if they were non-ischemic according to the CVOS definition. So they were allowed to have very small amounts of retinal ischemia, but if they had more than uh, the CVOS definition, which was 10 disdiomers, they were excluded. We only included people if the vein occlusion had been present for three to 12 months. Now, we waited for three months because in some people they will get a spontaneous improvement and we wanted to give people a chance to improve if they were going to improve before going into the trial. We included people who had uh, visual acuity uh, less than 2050 and most of these people were in the CVOS intermediate group uh, of uh, visual acuity and uh, they had to obviously have uh, clear media uh, so that we would be able to pass the, uh, the laser beam uh, through to the back of the eye without obstruction. We excluded people with any other potentially confounding conditions, including macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and also because there is some bleeding associated with this uh, procedure, we excluded people who were on um, Coumadin, uh, warfarin uh, anticoagulation. Can I get you to walk me through an LCRA treatment? Basically, um, we use a high-intensity argon green laser. Uh, we use a very small spot size and a small duration. So the spot size was 50 microns. The duration was about 0.1 of a second. And we used fairly high powers, so certainly higher powers than lasers at the time of that study were capable of producing. We used between 4 to 6 watts. Now, one spot was placed on the edge of the vein that we were choosing to create the anastomosis, and this was usually a second-order vein, a major branch off one of the four uh, major uh, branch uh, veins. So it was a, a second-order vein, and the first spot was placed just adjacent to the vein, and the aim of that spot was for it to pass unobstructed through and puncture a anatomical barrier between those two vascular layers that we talked about, and a layer called Brooks membrane. And this was all based on a lot of laboratory work that we had done prior to even trying this procedure on a human uh, patient. We'd looked at power densities, the effects of it on various tissues, so we had a fair idea that you needed this kind of power to reliably punch a Brooks membrane. Once that spot had been applied, we placed a second spot just on the edge of the vein, just next to where we'd placed the first spot. In about 50, 60% of times, with that sort of power, we produced a rupture of that vein. Uh, if we did not, we used a different type of laser, a neodymium YAG laser, to just clip the side wall of the vein just where that original laser spot had been placed to uh, puncture the, uh, the vein wall. So the aim of it was to breach this anatomical barrier, Brooks membrane, and also to breach the side wall of the vein. And uh, it did produce a little bit of bleeding from that vein, but we found that to be very easily controlled just by putting a, a bit of pressure on the eye with the contact lens that we, we had on the eye. 
Um, we tried um, two, two sites, uh, one above and one below uh, the optic nerve because in about 20% of people they have an independent passage of um, the superior and inferior circulation into the, uh, the optic nerve. And you can usually tell that in someone who doesn't have a vein occlusion, but in a vein occlusion the optic nerve is usually very swollen and you, um, you cannot determine that easily. And the typical laser power settings, you were using between 4 and 6 watts, is that right? Correct, yes. I'd, I'd have to say that uh, these were in the days when only tube lasers were available, and most tube lasers, what you saw on the dial, bore very little relationship to what actually came out of the, uh, the end of the laser. So there was usually in tube lasers a, a fairly high degradation of power, so we were probably getting less power than that. Uh, currently, I, I do this procedure, but I use one of the new solid-state lasers that is capable of going up to 2.7 watts, and I find that very reliable. I think um, in these more modern lasers, what you see on the dial bears uh, a lot more accuracy to what is actually um, being delivered to the surface of the retina. You had mentioned that you typically see bleeding. When, when I read your description of the procedure, I, 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 I pictured these large vitreous bleeds, or at, at the very least large uh, pre-retinal bleeds, but you, you don't see that. No, you don't, no. Um, basically, you see a very small little uh, uh, leak of blood, um, and typically what I would do as soon as I see that, I push on the eye with the contact lens, I raise the intraocular pressure, uh, and I just hold that on the eye for um, 40 seconds, then take it off gradually while I'm watching the uh, area where I've applied the laser. And uh, typically, uh, I don't get any further bleeding. As mentioned, we did exclude people who were on Coumadin, uh, Warfarin, um, anticoagulation, because we were concerned that we would not be able to control that bleeding. So we did not have any um, massive uh, hemorrhages occur from um, the laser site. Um, you know, at the time of um, its application. Now, what were your findings, Ian? What were your results? We, we managed to successfully create an anastomosis in 76% uh, of people. And this is certainly an advantage uh, or an, an improvement on our um, previous studies. Uh, our previous studies, the original study that we published in humans, we were able to create it in about a third of patients. The next study, we're up to about 50-something percent, but now we've finally got it up to um, a, you know, a reasonable level, which is um, 76 percent. Now, we found in those that had an anastomosis, they actually got a uh, almost 12-letter improvement, and this is letters measured on a um, ETDRS uh, chart, which is a, a very standard measure of uh, visual acuity. Those patients who had an anastomosis at the end of the follow-up, now this study had a long follow-up of 18 months because we wanted to make sure that there was no complications or problems from the anastomosis that uh, would occur during the follow-up period. 
So at the end of the study, those that had an anastomosis had an almost 12-letter improvement in vision on those who were subject to the standard of care at the time, uh, which was the standard of care according to the CVOS study. They were the group that was a control group. The control group had been subject to a sham retinal you know, laser, uh, so they hadn't actually had the laser puncture. So the group that had the anastomosis, uh, that 76% got a 12-letter improvement in vision over, base, uh, over the uh, control group. The other thing that we found that was also uh, very useful was that of the treated eyes who developed an anastomosis, we found that the anastomosis was significantly protective in terms of preventing that eye going on to the ischemic category, which was where there was more than 10 disdiameters of capillary non-perfusion. So we not only found that the anastomosis gave an improvement in vision, it also protected that patient uh, significantly from developing the more ischemic category of uh, vein occlusion. Despite your attempts, as you said, not, not all patients developed a circulation between the, the choroid and the, and the retina. When we look at your intent to treat results, what, what did you find? Well, intention to treat uh, is uh, where all patients who are entered in the study are included in the final results. So this is a study uh, which uh, has some elderly patients in it. Patients uh, developed during that 18 months other comorbidities. Uh, others, unfortunately, um, you know, did pass away. So uh, in the intent to treat group, you take their last observation, so their last visual acuity, and you carry it forward to the, to the end of the trial. So say you had one patient in the study who, it's an 18-month study, say died at six months, um, sudden heart attack, for example. You take their vision at that six-month period and you carry that forward to the, to the end of the study. So you include all patients in that study, you don't exclude them. So many of these studies uh, express the results in two forms, uh, the uh, intent to treat, which is the last observation carried forward, and the per protocol analysis, which is where you say, look, you know, we won't include those patients, we'll, um, we'll exclude them because they really didn't get the benefit of the uh, procedure, it hadn't really had an effect on their vision by then, and we'll only include at, say, 18 months those who completed the 18-month follow-up. So the results are expressed in this study as a per-protocol analysis and also as an um, a intent to treat. And um, our, our results were actually pretty similar for the per-protocol analysis uh, compared to the uh, intent to treat. In the uh, per-protocol analysis, uh, the final difference in those who were developing a functioning anastomosis uh, was about um, 12 letters of vision over the control group. In the last observation carried forward, uh, it was about um, 11 and a half. How concerned were you with neovascularization? After all, you're intentionally rupturing Brooks' membrane in eyes that are potentially full of angiogenic factors, and also by its nature, the LCRA treatment induces a new area of non-perfusion distal to the treatment site, and if anything, I would think that that would engender the production of, of even more angiogenic factors. 
Um, well, first of all, the LCR procedure uh, only in a very small percentage of cases, uh, probably about less than um, 10% creates an area of ischemia posterior to the or distal to the laser site. In most cases, it doesn't. But you're, you're quite right, the neovascularization is um, at the, attempt, at the uh, site of the LCRA is, is really the major complication of this procedure and it was something that we were very concerned about. This is why we only included patients who were non-ischemic in this study. Uh, we followed them very closely. The study manual, uh, which everyone involved in this study had to follow like a recipe book, uh, stated uh, very close follow-up times uh, after the LCRA procedure. If they developed any retinal ischemia, um, that was treated uh, with laser. If they developed neovascularization, they had a fluorescein angiogram. Areas of retinal ischemia uh, that were peripheral to that LCRA site or elsewhere were treated with laser. Um, so there was very, very close and very prompt treatment. The laser, as we've talked before, down-regulates the amount of VEGF in the eye. Also, there was a requirement that if they did develop uh, a vitreous hemorrhage uh, from the LCRA, uh, usually that was associated with neovascularization. If that did not clear by four weeks, they had to have a vitrectomy. So there was close and very aggressive uh, intervention of potential complications. Now, we did find that neovascularization was seen in about 18% of eyes. Now, the vast majority of those were very small areas of neovascularization and they settled without any um, further intervention. Uh, five percent of people, uh, sorry, five patients out of the, uh, the treated group of uh, 55 had a uh, vitrectomy. Uh, so the vitrectomy um, rate was about 7.5 percent. Uh, they um, most cases, that vitrectomy was for either non-resolving vitreous hemorrhages or for macular traction caused by scar tissue. Now, the group that had a vitrectomy also did you know, quite well, but they were required to have a vitrectomy early to intervene very promptly in these complications. Now, uh, the consequences of neovascularization these days are nowhere near as problematic as they were when this study was originally uh, started because these days we have the anti-VEGF antibodies uh, that we can inject in the eye to control neovascularization. These are the ranumizabab, uh, the Avastin, the Lucentis uh, drugs, and these are very effective. And we've also published another small follow-up study looking at controlling complications with these agents, and they control them very well, allow you to uh, place your laser uh, at leisure with, uh, without the risk of getting some of these quite devastating neovascular complications that we did see in the very, very early stages when we were first starting to utilize this, uh, this treatment. No choroidal neovascularization was observed in the control eyes, but what about the iris and rubiosis and iris neovascularization? Yeah, we, we found um, iris neovascularization was seen in four out of the 53 control eyes. So it occurred in uh, almost 8%. And this is very similar to the amount of iris neovascularization that occurred in the CVOS study in the group that really is most similar to this group, which is those in the intermediate visual acuity group. 
So we saw it in about 8%. We did not see it in any of the treatment group. Um, fortunately, um, because of the early intervention uh, requirements, no patients in this study actually developed um, uh, neovascular glaucoma. I understand that data gathering for the study predates OCT, but have you performed OCT in patients like these? Um, I have uh, subsequently, and the OCT is a, a very useful um, investigative device to quantitate uh, uh, the degree of macular edema. So you can actually measure macular edema resolving. And um, I have used it subsequently and found it to be very effective. We can actually see as the anastomosis starts to function, the OCT uh, macular thickness just decreasing. So the, this treatment actually because it creates a bypass to the obstruction, actually lowers the venous hydrostatic pressure, and you can just see the macular edema gradually resolve. What do you do in your own practice with non-ischemic CRVO patients? Do you perform LCRA? And do, do you routinely combine the LCRA when you do do it with an anti-VEGF intravitreal injection? Yes, I, I, I do treat uh, non-ischemic patients uh, with a um, LCRA in, uh, in my own practice now. Um, as said, the, uh, the trial has really uh, proven that this treatment does have a place and it's also proven that the you know, complications can be controllable with very careful follow-up and close management. I use anti-VEGF agents uh, really to control um, aberrant neovascularization, and it's, they're very effective for that. I still follow these patients very closely. I don't try and use the anti-VEGF inhibitors um, close to the time of the anastomosis, so if they're developing a little bit of neovascularization, I'll still tend to treat that with some peripheral laser. I think um, VEGF is probably required uh, for the creation of the anastomosis, so I don't want to interfere with the creation of the anastomosis. But if the neovascularization uh, persists and it's active, I then use the anti-VEGF inhibitors to prevent it uh, getting to the stage where it's, it's large or causing uh, retinal traction and perhaps distorting the macula. So I find uh, the anti-VEGF agents a useful safety measure uh, that you can control uh, the neovascularization that occurs at some of these sites very effectively. How long do you typically wait after the CRVO to treat? And do you feel that the development of neovascularization is, is related to the delay, that you, you, know, that, that you make neovascularization less likely if you put more time between the CRVO and your LCRA treatment? Well, there's certainly some patients that will progress to a more ischemic uh, form. Uh, I do tend to wait and give the, the patients some chance for spontaneous improvement. Um, I used to wait around three months. I, I wait less than that these days. If uh, they are showing signs of spontaneous improvement, I, I will just monitor them. And in those sort of patients, if the 
the vein occlusion is resolving, those are the ones that I find um, using the anti-VEGF agents or the crystalline steroids useful just to preserve the macula until we're waiting for spontaneous uh, recovery of venous outflow. It's in the group that are showing signs of progression or the group who is not resolving over a couple of months that I would consider treating with the LCRA procedure. I would like to stress that the mechanics of creating the anastomosis are really not terribly difficult. What is required, however, is very close follow-up of these patients. I see them every two to three weeks after the anastomosis until I'm satisfied that the anastomosis is functioning and that they haven't got any neovascular complications. So I follow them very closely and I intervene very early if there's a complication. And I find by doing that I can control events that I may not have anticipated and uh, give you know, my patients with this condition the best chance at getting a, uh, a good anatomical and visual result. Thank you very much, Ian. My, my pleasure, Josh. Ian McAllister is Director of Clinical Services at the Centre for Ophthalmology and Visual Science at the University of Western Australia in Perth, Australia. His paper, The Central Retinal Vein Bypass Study, a trial of laser-induced chorioretinal venous anastomosis for central retinal vein occlusion, appears in the May 2010 issue of Ophthalmology. I recently had the chance to speak to Tamim Kwam about the ASOA, its benefits, and the three-month trial membership. Tamim, can you tell me how the trial membership to the ASOA works? Well, essentially, uh, the, either the physician or the administrator uh, can contact ASOA either through their website or they can call. Shall I give you the number? It, it's 703 Five nine one two 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 zero, and they can request a uh, free trial membership to the American Society for Ophthalmic Administrators for three months. Tamim, if the administrator from my practice calls and sets up a trial membership, what are the sorts of things that she would have access to as a member of the ASOA? On the website, there are a number of different areas. Um, one area, for example, is called iMail, and essentially there are different groups uh, which which one can subscribe to. So, for example, the uh, there is a list for ambulatory surgery centers. There's a list for electronic medical records. There's an optical list. There's a retina practice list. There's a list for the ASOA business list, which talks about things like coding and running a practice. There are files that you can uh, upload or download. For example, if someone said, here, this is the form that we use for such and such, here's a, here's a link to it. And so you can then obtain their exact form uh, that they have uploaded. You can download that. Like any practice, we have some challenges when it comes to coding. What is the sort of coding support that we would get from the ASOA? There are a few items for coding that the ASOA has. So, for example, there is a, a coding newsletter uh, which uh, goes out periodically, and that is um, uh, provided by uh, uh, lots of different consultants, but uh, Anne Rosen Associates, for example, is one of them that is involved in, in uh, the coding newsletter. Uh, so if people write in and say, you know, uh, as an example, you know, we have a patient that 
went to the operating room and had an unplanned vitrectomy, can this be coded as a 66982 or is it a 66984? Or, for example, a patient comes in the post-operative period for a problem in the other eye. Can that be billed for and what's the appropriate modifier? And so if you would ask questions like that, um, um, uh, uh, those will go in the newsletter and then that will be responded by, by uh, a person who is a coding specialist. Uh, and uh, then you can, you can learn what they have to say about that particular topic. Uh, in addition to that uh, uh, coding newsletter, uh, there is also on the ASOA eGroups, uh, you can also post uh, coding questions on there as well. And then uh, it's amazing how many people respond to these questions almost instantaneously. There's always someone online who just checks your post and, and responds to it. And the newsletter is included in the membership to the ASOA? Yes, it is, yeah. There are several newsletters, in fact. There's the Administrative Eye Care magazine. There's also the Coding newsletter uh, and, the, and Practice Management Insights, which is another newsletter as well. Um, and just recently, uh, ASOA has uh, initiated a newsletter for human resources. I can tell you that the coding newsletter is extremely helpful, and the practice management insights, that uh, covers so many different areas. That, that, uh, it covers um, even areas, that are articles that are of interest, even outside of ophthalmology, uh, things that are going on, um, uh, not just ophthalmic specific, but, but, but in the entire medical community as a whole. Uh, in the June issue of Practice Management Insights, uh, they uh, covered um, lots of different topics about um, implementing an, an electronic medical record, for example, uh, avoiding malpractice risks, for example. Um, it talks about data breach reports from the OIG. Uh, it talks about exit strategies on how do you sell your medical practice. There, there, are, over, there are over a dozen articles just in that uh, in that month's uh, newsletter. I think that subscribing to the trial membership is, you know, it's, it's a win-win situation because not only do you access the information for free, but once you see what is available, um, you'll wonder how you ever survived without it. Tamim, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. questions of Dr. McAllister or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.